1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Niven Govindan talks about his latest novel, this brutal house. <laughs> Neven Govinden is the author of four previous novels, most recently All the Days and Nights, which was long listed for the Folio Prize and shortlisted for the Green Carnation Prize. His third novel, Black Bread White Beer won the 2013 Fiction Uncovered Prize. And today we're going to be talking about his latest novel, This Brutal House, which has recently been shortlisted for this year's Gordon Byrne Prize. Niven, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so
2: how would you describe this one, first of all?
3: My, I suppose my stock answer is that I feel that it's a protest novel. In a nutshell. That's kind of that was my aim when I was writing it. I really wanted to write a protest novel and I wanted to write a book about people of colour and about queer people of colour and about queer lives. So it really came from that mindset combined with that I wanted to write a book about Voguing. So it's kind of those two so elements.
2: The novel starts off with multiple narrators, a group of yeah. mothers, as they're described uh five people narrating from a protest um i guess first of all before we talk about what they're protesting why this i mean it's like a chorus I yes
3: guess. yeah I guess every book I start writing is always a reaction to the last book that I wrote. So the book before this was All the Days and Nights, which was a very sort of lyrical book about art and physicality and sort of the end of a certain era of portrait painting in the late 70s in America. And there was something in that tonally that I liked about that sort of elegiac sort of remembrance but I wanted to do it on a bigger canvas and I'd been experimenting for a while in writing sort of group narratives using sort of plural forms and I I wrote a very long piece of work which I still don't know what I'm going to do with at some point which was using a they and I really liked that. So it was just sort of very much sort of in my oxygen per se in terms of writing with that kind of style it was just I didn't really overthink it I knew I was going to write about a group of mothers and I was going to use a collective voice but it was very obvious that it was going to be a we, and it was going to be present so you felt involved but it did feel choral and I didn't as I was writing it I knew that the power of of that particular voice was in its choral strength so I wasn't going to break it down into sneezy happy sleepy whatever with different characteristics the mothers had to be a group of unnamed mothers and the sort of bedrock of the voguing scene the founder of of their houses and what what I was trying to sort of get across is a sort of communities collective trauma, determination you know, we'll talk about this in more detail but they're protesting about the children from the voguing houses who've gone missing over the years whether it's down to homophobic, transphobic violence, poverty, effects of structural inequality and they've tried protesting in many ways and this is their way that they're going to protest in this book is by starting a silent protest on the steps of New York to show the city the strength of a community's trauma and determination to find answers for their loved ones and that's that's why the voice was really important to write it in that way
2: and as well as you know, acting as a chorus for the novel, it also feels like almost like this is a manifesto that they've handed over. Yeah, I mean, City Hall.
3: it's very, it's very much that. And I wanted to get across the idea that it felt like it was. I'm writing an unwritten oral history. It was, you know, it's a story of a community writing their story that no one is interested in writing it's really interesting getting feedback on this book now it's been out in the world for a few months people have read it and quite a few people have come up and said to me i read this book and then i lo- was looking on wikipedia to see when this protest happened it's like well this protest didn't happen this is you know it's fiction but it very much taps into the nature of queer protest around the world and particularly in new york from the voguing scene in the 80s and the die-ins and the tie-in with sort of AIDS protesting and just, you know, queer protest. I mean, you know, it's 50th anniversary of Stonewall this year and, you know, Stonewall was... The protest started by, you know, queer people of colour in New York saying we're not going to put up with police brutality anymore.
2: And indeed, this protest is not about an incident that's happened. The novel is set roughly in the present day. Yes. They're protesting things that have taken place over the last... 40 years
3: yeah it's about it's about it's about a you know a demographics collective trauma so it's not it feels like you're you know it's not a who done it you don't find out what's happened that, that's not what i'm interested in writing i'm interested in writing about a collective experience and then as the book progresses there's a second narrative strand who's a guy called teddy who's one of the children from one of the voging houses who's grown up who beca- you know who's a kid off the street who's taken in by the mothers given shelter and becomes part of a sort of an adopted chosen family and he thrives within that system is an intelligent boy goes to college and ends up working for the city and is sort of tasked with finding a truce for this protest because he's got a foot in in both camps. Um, But what I was interested with Teddy was having a very personalised view of how living through that family system, how that affected him and the sort of level of burden he feels and how he can repay that debt.
2: Let's talk about that family system in in more detail then, because you know a lot of people would not be familiar with it. Who are these mothers?
3: So the mothers are the founders of the voguing houses. So the voguing, you know, so obviously the voguing was a massive and still is a massive scene in New York, and it's a very much a competitive enterprise, competitive sport, queer sport, I guess. And a mother has a voguing house, and she'll have children. Who are part of that voguing house? Pretty much like teams, and they compete in in balls. So they compete in balls where they walk in certain categories, where they do whether it's to do with fashion, whether it's to do with you know fem realness, whether it's to do with voguing itself. So it kind of really runs the gamut. So it's a very competitive world but you know what i wanted to get across was the sort of let if you think about the level of trauma that community has probably experienced so the idea that you know mothers who were normally at each other's throats are actually speaking as one voice they're past that point of competition though the book does actually sort of give you these sort of little sort of Technicolor flashes of the power of what a Vogue ball is and the real energy and the fire of it. What I really wanted to get across was actually not so much what people would automatically think of or want to... hear about invoking which is a sort of really sort of bitchy not bitchy but you know i mean a competitive superficial world that really taps into people's preconceptions of what queer life is mm-hmm. i'm trying to use that canvas for something bigger to talk about a different side of queer experience i guess
2: there's a point in the book where the mothers talk about how now in the present day they have i guess less power than they did yeah. back in back in the 80s and 90s yeah when of course you know the. AIDS
3: crisis was was at its height and, you know, how... But also it's a, it's a, it's a reference to two things. It's a reference to their mourning of the passing of that mini-epoch in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, where Voking had its moment within popular culture, mm. which is very much what the second series of poses exploring now, which starts in 1990. Um, you know, obviously we're writing, you know, different things, but there's a correlation in terms of actually there's a certain moment... You know, and they they explore in the show where you know Madonna releases Vogue, and they all say, you know, this is our moment. This is really going to give us the spotlight, and they explore that in that see in this season. So when I talk about that in the book, I am referring to that, but also this is very much a book about aging, and it's a book about family and chosen family, and what they're really mourning is actually the passing, their own aging, and the invisibility of themselves within the queer community and within their families as being older the whole thing about families and raising children is that children leave so their mourning and their trauma isn't just about the children who disappear off the streets and they never find them again it's about the children who they love who leave them and don't come back and the interesting thing about Teddy is that he's grown but he stays within them he's not a mother he's not a child he's sort of in between and he becomes a protector for the mothers he becomes their de facto parent but he also becomes a parent to the children because the children no longer respect the mother's point of view and up until this protest starts I think oh actually they do have something here so it's it's a morning for all those things but it's very much rooted in the notion of family and aging and and their invisibility into sort of later middle age
2: teddy is also integrated he's 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 grown up he's gone and left and he's joined the reality world you know he's, he's he works at city hall
3: yeah well i mean you know it's about how he was able to fulfil his potential because he had a really secure home that the mothers gave him and they really, you know, he's encouraged to study, he's encouraged to kind of follow his own path and, you know, there are certain things that happen in the book in terms of children disappearing that he becomes close to that affects him profoundly and have a real impact on his adult development and how he sees himself in adult life, for sure. But he sort of overrides that by in terms of trying to achieve something for himself. So, again, it's a reflection of both those things, his own ambition and the fact that he was nurtured by a chosen queer family.
2: Tell us something more about, again, we didn't really go into that family structure. Yeah. So, so looking at, I guess, Teddy as an example, uh, how was? T- let's talk about how he was brought up.
3: So, Teddy... I mean, there's not that much backstory for Teddy, sort of quite deliberately. It's, you know, he's introduced as an adult Mm -hmm. and as the book sort of goes back then you kind of see there's strands that show his narrative as a teen when he literally comes off the street you know after having a difficult family life with his birth mother and um, finding shelter with you know being drawn to the attraction of the Vogue Balls and being spotted by the mothers and being offered a place to stay and obviously that is a very you know that sort of the Vogue houses chose their children. You know, you could compete in a Vogue house and not live with your house mother, of course. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of children were just street kids who were sleeping on the piers in New York and were looking for shelter. And, you know, the whole concept of those chosen family with the mothers was not only were they ruling their their voguing house but they were nurturing and giving support to those children whether they lived with them or not and not all children flourished in that system so you'll see in the book you know children who disappear there's children in the book who have quite fractious relationships with the mothers who take them in because they again come up with an authority figure who they need but also resent which you know same same thing as any other family.
2: Yeah, perhaps you say something about um there's the, the sort of central figure of Sherry who is one of the people that's
3: gone. Yeah, so thing. Sherry is a one of the kids who goes missing, who's a young trans girl, and she's really feisty and she is a complete star on the ball scene and everyone really loves her and she's a character and she's got real presence and as much as you know, she loves being part of this chosen family, being within the mothers, but she also fights against it, and she's very much trying to find her own way of living in that ecosystem and also trying to find a way beyond that. So, you know, that relationship is kind of... It's fractious, but it's also, again, really, really nurturing.
1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today, I'm talking to Niven Govindan, and we're talking about his latest novel, This Brutal House. And Niven, one of the central themes of the book, and I mentioned how Teddy had sort of left and gone off to join the... um Well, he hasn't left, he's still involved, but he's he's got a job in the reality world. Yeah, and sure. There's, a, there's a, a push and pull in the book between the concept of reality and the concept of realness. What do we mean by realness?
3: Well, realness comes from it's a play on... You know, voguing is all about... It's play, it's sparring, it's a battle, it's all about appearances and... Um, you know, voguing really st- the ball scene, voguing ball scene really started b- was because um, queer people of color were barred from going to gables in in New York because they, you know, there was so much rivalry with pageants and stuff. So they stopped they stopped allowing them to compete in pageants. So they were like, we're going to start our own balls, and that's kind of how the ball scene came along. So realness is about. Um, the concepts of passing in the real world. So, you know, in terms of, you know, it's a lot about, you know, gender identity and and role play. So, and it's, it addresses, you know, A, the sort of gender disparity for queer people of colour within a sort of, you know, in terms of structural inequality as well, but also in terms of just, the power differentials in structural inequality. So not only do you have fem categories, which is all about being able to pass as a woman and being not even able to be woman, being able to pass as a rich white woman dressed in Chanel, going for a brunch... You know, that would that would be a category. But then also you've got executive realness, which is about, you know, men wearing really amazing Gucci and Ralph Lauren suits and passing for an executive who's got, you know, a hundred million dollar advertising account, etc. So it's all about those, you know, it's about play, but it comes from a very kind of serious place in terms of addressing the role of where queer people of colour have seen in society.
2: I want to talk about researching this world for the book. And, and I understand that actually... A lot of it is based in your own experience.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big researcher per se. I'm not interested in, in writing books that come out of, you know, lots of, you know, months and years of research or whatever. It's very much about trying to find a sort of, you know, what I'm interested in is sort of how people think and how people are. And it's very much about trying to find a sort of emotional, psychological kind of truth to how people live and also in terms of how I'm writing you know in terms of structurally this is quite a structurally adventurous book it sort of jumps quite experimental it's not particularly an easy read per se you know it's interesting that a lot of people who've picked up this book you know in terms of queer readers people really get it but I wrote it in a very defiant way that it wasn't going to be a primer for voguing. So I wasn't going to explain anything about the world. I wasn't even going to explain my position or point of view. You know, it's not a historical document, though it does. It should feel like it's a it's an unwritten social history. So it's all those things. And also, you know structurally and formally I'm trying to sort of make a statement on using voguing as a sort of springboard for something bigger in terms of what we want to talk about in terms of how queer people are seen in society and also in terms of how you tell a story using group voices and you know for me it's very much a novel about voices and sort of differing perspectives and stuff so those were really my main Priorities when I was writing the book, which was really about getting the voice right. And I, I came. To, I wrote a story, a short story about Vagin, about a decade ago, for a really tiny Italian magazine, and it was sort of about the twilight era of it's about a mother sort of thinking about the sort of twilight era of when they were great and stuff. And um, I sent it to so this Italian magazine published it. But I also sent it to another editor, uh, another queer magazine called But. And I remember, and they took another story. But it, the, one of the editors they read it, and the first thing he said to me was, "Is this coming from a novel about?" the ball sink because I really want to read that and I sort of had this sort of light bulb moment thinking no one's done it I really should do it and then sort of other books get in the way and you you write the, the story that you need to write at that particular time that really kind of consumes you so I just sort of put it on a back burner and as I was finishing the last you know all the days and nights the book before this one I'd realised that I'd probably spent the last two or three years kind of rereading everything James Baldwin had written mm-hmm. which you know I last read him when I was a teenager and I was really obsessed with him he's still like one of my cornerstones but I reread everything and there was something in that oratory that really kind of struck me and as I finished this book I knew that I wanted to write and that that last book was set in America and I sort of knew even though I didn't didn't want to repeat myself I did want to write a book that was set in New York and I wanted it felt like now I had to do a book about voguing and I sort of had a conversation with someone about Baldwin around that time and I sort of said if Baldwin was around now he would have written the definitive novel about voguing because he would have been there and he would have understood he came from that scene he knew it he was part of the church you know, only he could have written it. And then I thought, and then that sort of light bulb thing came and, you know, you're right, his ego comes into, well, actually, well, maybe only I can do it. And then I realised, actually, only I could write this as I, in this way, in this kind of form. And so I just, it was just in my head for a really long time. And then between books, what happens is I kind of just sketch around what I'm, what I want to write next. I've got a sort of clear idea of what I want to write, but not necessarily how I want to do it or what Mm -hmm. the story is. I'm very much from that sort of Philip Roth, school of you know one sentence at a time I don't have some massive structure I sort of know a beginning and an end and some vague sense and that's it and that's kind of enough for me actually and literally that first paragraph came to, and also I write by hand so everything takes a really long time um, and I remember waking up one day and having the first sort of paragraph first two paragraphs of the book in my head and I literally wrote that straight away and and, and I didn't change it and that became that gave me the sort of path to kind of move that structure. And so for me, A, I don't necessarily ever need to feel with this kind of book or anything that I write that I need to hold up any kind of authenticity badge. It's a queer POC novel. That is my world. So I don't need, you know what I mean? So I I don't worry about that. I know this is like my truth and this is sort of collective truth. I grew up in that era. So it's very much, you know, I understand the the responsibility of that. So in terms of research, I was very much, I spent, you know, it took me five years to write. So basically, I did spend a lot of that time thinking about the ball scene in sort of differing ways. I mean, you know, the ball scene in New York now is completely different. There's a whole, you know, there's two schools. There's old school Vogue, which is sort of the 80s, 90s way of actually dancing. And there's a new school Vogue, which is completely different. It's based around a completely different kind of sound bed. It's much harder. It's much more aggressive. It's much more gymnastic. It's much faster. It's less about posing, though it is about posing. And as I was writing this book, there was a the ball scene in New York is still really big, you know, still very underground. And um, some of the DJs and promoters who run that would just live stream those balls. So literally, I would wake up at 6am as a ball is running in New York and just watch those balls. And it just gave me a lot of kind of energy, as I was thinking about the sort of energy of the scene for sure. But the other thing that really, there was two other things that were really crucial to this book, a, in terms of it, Feeling like a protest novel, that was really important to me. So my idea, as I came to book the A, was I was going to write about Vogue in, but I knew I wanted to write about the life of a protest, the sort of beginning, middle, and end of a protest, and its ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And maybe about a year before that, I'd read um, the Ishmael Kadaré book. Is it Stone City? I can't remember. Anyway, which is set within a siege in a walled city. And I remember being really blown. I mean, A, he's amazing, but I remember being really blown away by that book and thinking I'm really interested in siege mentality and that sort of ecosystem. So those were the two elements. Um, The other thing, though, of course, as I was writing it, and this shows you how long it took me to write this book, as I started to write it, my only precedent really outside of queer, the queer sort of protest history was... Um, the Occupy movement that was currently happening in in London and New York and Washington. So that was was very much the template I had as it was happening. But as I was writing this book, then the Black Lives Matter movement really kicked off in America in a really massive way. And I suddenly realised that this book really needed to be written quite quickly, not necessarily because I wanted to catch up with what was happening in current events, but just in terms of how people had remembered... On mass, the real power of physical protest and being part of, of a physical movement. So as I was writing it, Black Lives Matter happened, then there was Me Too, then there were marches against Trump, now there's climate extinction. And it's interesting because when a book, as you're writing a book, you have no idea of the climate um, you're going to be publishing a book in because it takes mm-hmm. such a long time. But as I was finishing it, I really kind of felt that this was a book that kind of needed to be read quite quickly.
2: You mentioned that... The Vogue scene is still relatively underground in New York, but it has also, as as you mentioned, television series, you know, it has been sort of incorporated into popular culture way more than it was well, I mean, in the eighties and
3: nineties. Queer culture's always been popular culture. What's interesting, I suppose, is the visibility of um, what previously would be seen as radical quick culture. So, you know, the drag scene, people never really understood it, you know, which drag, which is part of what the ball scene is. And, you know, the success of something like drag, RuPaul's Drag Race globally has completely changed people's perception of what drag is and what drag artistry is. It's also, you know, opened really important dialogue about who gets to do drag, you know, to challenge the preconceptions of It's just about men dressing up as women. It isn't. It's to do with all kinds of gender presentation and, you know, pushing boundaries and all kinds of stuff. So that's really important. So those things have really... You know, when I first started writing this book, which was five years ago, and I really don't talk about what I'm writing as I'm writing it, I just get on and do it. But I did sort of speak to a couple of people and just say, yeah, I'm think i probably, you know, this is what I'm doing, I'm writing to not a voguing. And people just didn't understand it. People outside of the queer community didn't understand it. They're like, what, from that Madonna song? And it's really interesting that the success of Drag Race and now Pose has really sort of opened up people's appetite for learning more about queer culture. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of arguments to be said in both directions about, you know, the mainstreaming of queer culture and what that actually does. From my point of view, I think anything that opens up a greater sense of dialogue. I think if you're a kid, whether you're queer or just a queer ally, and you watch Pose or you watch Drag Race, and that makes you become a better human being, and you use that as a springboard to learn more about whether it's a great artist or a great writer or whatever, then phenomenal.
2: Well, that was what I wanted to come to, which is, you know, this this idea that, the opening up of of that culture, to what extent that's changed what happens on the scene itself. But also, you just sort of alluded to this a little, a little yourself, but, you know, just the... I mean, we are in a place now where the general population's understanding of gender identity is a lot different than yeah, what absolutely. it was. Yeah,
3: But there's a difference between understanding it and having lived experience. Sure. And, you know, the proof of the pudding is not only about sort of, you know, being an ally, but also allowing every member of that of any sort of oppressed community or marginalised community to have the ability to use their voice. You know, I, I don't think we necessarily need people to speak up for us or, you know in any kind of capacity i think you have to allow people to speak up and share their own experience and you know allyhood is all all well and good but you know when someone is shouting abuse to you across the street you are the one who has to experience, you know all those things are like lived experience and it's that's very hard to put that across unless you live that experience so you know i think you know again it's just about opening up a conversation and, and learning more about life per se i mean what's interesting about this book i think and some of the reactions to the book is outside of the kind of the queer community and you see in literary circles is you either get this book in terms of what it's trying to do stylistically and and how adventurous i'm trying to be in terms of structure and stuff on its own terms or you get so caught You know, some people get too caught up in the fact that they don't understand the world, so they won't engage with the book for the book's sake. And it's like, actually, you know, have you not had any experience of youth culture in the last, you know, 20 years? It's, you know, it's very interesting about what it confirms about people's prejudices or the baggage that they bring or the privilege that they bring Mm -hmm. to their own reading that they can't engage in any other kind of way. You know, for me, this is also very much a book about, you know, the city as a character and. You know, really about gentrification, about structural changes in the city, about power within the city as a sort of, you know, a Fritz Lang-esque, the city is the character. And I was very interested in how Teddy's relationship with the city is Teddy's relationship with the mother's. It's, it's very, very similar, you know, in terms of his dependence, his nurturing, all that stuff. And that brings its own tension. One of the key books I read in the run up to writing this book was reading Robert Carro's the power broker, which is all about the life of Robert Moses. And Robert Moses transformed the look and the structure of New York City as we know it. You know, he wasn't an elected official, but he amassed great power. And he, you know, he built freeways and he built swimming pools and he built tower blocks. And he, you know, bulldozed half of New York down to give us the New York we know now. And you argue in either way, you know, was that progress? Was that some kind of, you know, emperor-esque fantasy you know and you know the book very much is about as he's working in city hall it's all about the legacy of people who work in the city and he's doing it on a much smaller level and his his idea of paying the mothers back is you know it's not just about making sure that their bills are paid and that you know they're still on the right side of their co-ops in new york it's all about what can i do in a structural way to change the life of my community in, in a bigger more profound way
2: and as representatives of the city as well as well as City Hall, it's also about the relationship between the mothers and the police.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's very it's all about differing um, relationships between you know um, power structures. There's a key section in the book which is when. One of the one of the children when Sherry goes missing, and they finally decide they are going to, you know, because obviously they have no trust in the police, and they decide they are going to call the police. The police, two police men, turn up at one of the apartments, and they're completely interrogated because they're not interested in a kid going missing. They're interested in what they feel is, is some kind of deviant home setup, and they want to get to the bottom of it. Um, and again, that's very, and that that whole section is just pretty much only narrated by the policeman differing voices and again it's really about you know my interest in kind of a, a novel of voices and a sort of you know thinking very much of people like Studs Turkle and it's very much a sort of nod mm. to those kind of heroes who really sort of chronicled the city.
2: Just one more thing for me then and then I will get you to read a bit of the book if you would. And sure. you've mentioned a couple of times the the sort of structural audacity of the book and there's a couple of chapters told from the the perspective of a Vogue caller. Yeah, sure. Um, just tell us something about the decision to, to, to put in those two chapters. One of them is perhaps a little more hard-going than the other one, but the first chapter, which um, is funny, the wordplay is just it's just well, amazing. It's just a litany of, of these calls, which is just...
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, a Vogue caller is very much, you know, the MC of the proceedings that are Vogue ball. He's not only... it's not only a... You know, he's not only in charge of, you know, running the competitions, or she, running the competitions um, and, you know, facilitating the walks for the judges to judge and stuff, but it's it's a constant read. So it's constantly about not only encouraging, but being really shady when, you know, they're not up to par. So it's about witticism, it's about wordplay. I mean, I'm really obsessed with, you know, the pageantry and the, you know, the vibrancy of, of, of a ball. And this was... But also, this is beyond that. This isn't, you know, I'm not writing it in some kind of documentary way. It's very much to do with the aesthetic of the book. And it's it's, in itself, that vocal, that extended vocal chapter is a, you know, one of the things about The Mothers is, the tone of The Mothers is, it's a, you know half the book most of the book they're silent so essentially you're really tapping into a sort of collective consciousness mm-hmm. and the the and bearing in mind that they are quite rowdy this is a very muted kind of tone because it really reflects their state of mind as they're Protesting, So the idea of the vocal is, is to sort of mo- turn up the volume a bit and really give you noise and fire. But in itself, I wanted it to reflect the mentality of the mothers in terms of for it to feel that it, itself, the vocal is a reflection on the nature of Queer Lives within the vocal and the play of realness. And actually, for me, it feels it's, it's, it's quite a political kind of roll call because it's really not just about you know it references you know first time up in drags realness and all the fun stuff but actually it moves a lot deeper and it's really about you know the visibility of queer lives within the community and within wider society and also mourning kind of the children who've gone and the power of the kids within the Vogue Ball to actually speak up for themselves so it's very much about that there's a second part which is about walking and it, it has really perplexed a lot of people which I find hysterical because I just think have you never listened to a dance record ever in the last mm-hmm. 20 years so it's it's very much about the sort of and it's a reflection of the sort of shamanism of a vocalist turn of phrase I mean and it's also about the sort of spirituality of the vogue ball, it's really about you know the first part of the book is the first very first line of the book is, is is the mothers testifying that they had church so and the vogue ball is church so that is you know it's it you know it's almost like a hymn I mean you know a friend of mine who's who writes I won't name drop who read this book before it came out the first thing he said to me was I feel like I'm reading the private diary of saints and that's kind of what you know for me it feels like a, quite a spiritual religious book for, from all those perspectives and some people pick up on that. Some people don't. I mean, you know, you take what you take from a book. That's really out of my power. But well, that I mean, I for me, faith that without was, actual religion,
2: yeah, faith I mean, in something. I mean,
3: and also the book, the book comes from a religious line in the sense that the mothers talk about how they grew up with religion and mm-hmm. rejected it. But what I was very interested in writing about and. You know the more I write books i th- I realize that there are strands that kind of c- bring all the books together, and that's always interests me and This is very much matches that, which is when whether it's collectively or one person suffers a series of traumas that they can no longer find answers to within science and in this case you know the mothers went to politicians they went to press they tried went through legal reasons they tried political lobbying none of those things work so they realize they have a sort of a late religious conversion and they just start going back to church again and this silence comes from that aspect they don't necessarily feel god-fearing but they're now looking for an answer that comes beyond rational argument because they've had no other answers that gave them any satisfaction so the book is in again in some way reflects that okay i'm going to read from sort of one of the early parts of the book which is narrated by the mothers in their collective we voice and it's very much about how they explain why they are protesting the way that they do and it really gives you an insight into what they had to get through to reach this process which you know we've kind of been discussing we've reached our position through trial and error Wasted years adhering to the official channels of complaints. Registering our dissent through community action and the ballot box. Years of putting faith into the power of statistics at the ballot box. How power could be swayed by tipping the balance in marginal precincts. Our energy focused on the campaign trail, believing that it was in our power to inform and persuade. When that failed, we attempted direct action. We recognised that we did not have decades to regroup politically, nor did we have the taste for it patronised and belittled, forced into a ghetto they viewed as essential to our enlightenment, taking to the streets in the spirit of our community organising and activist forebears, an arsenal of placards and loudspeakers, baseball bats and rocks. Their thinking was that we would fear the rows of turned-out riot police, military in their bearing, but as threatening as country barn dancers. That tear gas would contain us when we'd lived with nightclub smoke machines most of our adult lives and learned how to see past the mist. We were pissed and no longer afraid. We finally had use for the bodies we'd spent so long starving and pumping. We learned the power of our physical strength. All that we shied away from as children we discovered now. How far a rock can be thrown by a single hand, the furthest we could run when chased. The speed at which our blood glucose was assimilated after physical exertion. The power of our voices, the solidity of our fists... Battles on our neighbourhood street corners, blood spilling onto the steps of our markets and dry cleaners. We took pleasure in learning that a punch landing correctly upon soft flesh is a tangible result, one that cannot be discounted as an ineligible vote by righteous town hall staff or lost in city administration paperwork lodged among stacks of other investigations. We understood how fear could be successfully employed to our ends if we remained consistent in both our actions and our number, that we were not the weaker party in these episodes. Our knowledge of the streets, our physical prowess and the force of our anger propelled us further than we would have otherwise dared. We found success through rioting, making our dissatisfaction known, but effecting prolonged change was harder still. We were not prepared. What we'd not factored on was how our spirit would be weakened by a sustained assault on our home streets, how it was impossible to switch off, smoke and blood trailing our movements, the imprint of a gloved fist sending us to sleep atop our battlefields. Our voice was strong, but there was nothing healthy in our attitude, often ready to turn on each other rather than concede a slight against the opposing side. Long after police lines dispersed and our long-cherished complaints were addressed, we remained ghoul-like in our ghettos, fighting our shadow. Only through prayer do we remember ourselves and our capabilities.
2: So I've been talking to Niven Govindan, we've been talking about his latest novel, This Brutal House, which is out in the UK from Dialogue Books. Niven, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me.